traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-14 The Just Approached by sea in the afternoon, the city must have gleamed. Magnificent palaces, temples, and public monuments, all built of blinding white stone, marked Caesarea for what it was, both the capital of Roman Judea and a tribute to Herod's patron, Caesar Augustus. Large towers stood along the sea walls, the most ornate of which was named the Drusium, after Tiberius's brother Drusus. At the mouth of the harbor loomed three enormous colossi. Their size and beauty were only rivaled by the statue of Octavian inside his own local temple, itself modeled on the famous statue of Zeus at Olympia. Beyond the immediately visible, Herod the Great had also constructed the only major deep-sea port between Phoenicia and Egypt, along with warehouses and marketplaces to foster maritime trade. Like its sister capital in Mauritania, Herod's Caesarea featured broad avenues, public baths, theaters, and auditoriums, designed to make a Roman visitor feel instantly at home. During his reign, Herod had held gladiatorial games and sporting events to demonstrate his devotion to Greco-Roman culture. In fact, in 12 BC, he'd even subsidized the cash-strapped Olympic Games, donating the prizes for all the winners. In short, Felix and Drusilla met with a pretty soft landing when they finally put in at Caesarea. Before long, they settled into the former Herodian palace recently vacated by Felix's predecessor, Ventidius Cumanus. And then, for Felix at least, it was down to business. The new procurator's first priority was the one that had cost Cumanus his job, the ongoing guerrilla war of Eleazar son of Danaeus against the Samaritans. Which brings up one of the complexities in the ethnic makeup of Judea. There was, 
and still is, a very large question as to whether the Samaritans, the people living in the region of the ancient Israelite capital of Samaria, were or were not Jewish. Some long-time listeners can hearken back to episode 17 and the fall of Samaria to Sargon II. In keeping with Neo-Assyrian practice, Sargon conducted a mass deportation of the local Jewish population, i.e. the ten northern tribes, and replaced them with other peoples from across the empire. The Samaritans claimed descent from two Jewish tribes who'd somehow avoided deportation. In fact, they even claimed their version of Judaism was more pure than the Jews of Jerusalem, whose tradition had been corrupted by decades spent in Babylonian exile. In contrast, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem claimed the Samaritans were descendants of Babylonians and other foreigners introduced to the region by Sargon II. Since this debate is still raging 2,000 years later, I hope I'm not spoiling anything by saying it was not resolved by Felix. What Felix did need to resolve was the ongoing war in the Judean countryside. His first step was to bring the Jewish leadership on side. Apart from their on-again, off-again kingship, the most senior role to which a Jew could aspire was the high priesthood. And, as with many power structures, the position had become a family business. As soon as Judea had been partly provincialized, back in 6 AD, the Romans had installed a new high priest, the 26-year-old scion of a prominent Jewish family named Ananus. Even after being deposed a decade later, Ananus continued to exert influence through his five sons and son-in-law each of whom succeeded him as high priest. The current high priest was Ananus's son, Jonathan. As a wealthy beneficiary of the status quo, Jonathan was only too happy to assist Felix in clamping down on Jewish bandits. Their teamwork eventually resulted in the capture of Eliezer and his deportation to Rome for crucifixion. Even as Felix basked in Roman praise for his success, the underlying regional tension remained utterly unresolved. Shortly after Drusilla's arrival, she was reunited with King Herod Agrippa II. Though eleven years her senior, the Judean prince had been raised alongside Drusilla for four years back in Rome, before being given the kingship of neighboring Chalcis in Syria. Drusilla learned that Claudius had now given Agrippa rule over the Judean territories of Gaulanitus, Traconitus, Batnea, and Aronitus, also known as the Northern Tetrarchy. As part of the transition, Agrippa transferred the rule of Chalcis to his cousin Aristibulus. He then celebrated his promotion by marrying off two of his sisters, Mariamne and Drusilla. Not our Drusilla, a different Drusilla. The 19-year-old Mariamne was married to King Antiochus IV of Comagene. The 15-year-old Drusilla had originally been slated to marry Antiochus' son, with the stipulation that the prince convert to Judaism. 
But when he reneged on the deal, Agrippa decided to marry Drusilla to Gaius Julius Azizus, the priest-king of neighboring Emesa, who, for his part, agreed to get circumcised. Which, I'm not sure how an Emesene priest-king could moonlight as a practicing Jew, but we'll leave that one alone for now. Okay, so it's about this time that things get a little crazy. And just to help keep things straight, I'm going to start referring to Drusilla, the granddaughter of Juba and Selene, as our Drusilla, and Agrippa's sister Drusilla as Herod Drusilla. Trust me, you'll see why in a minute. Shortly after Herod Drusilla's wedding to Azizus, Felix and our Drusilla paid a visit to Agrippa's court, in the regional capital of Caesarea Philippi. At the time, Herod Drusilla was visiting her brother, and Felix was immediately taken with her beauty and charm. In fact, Felix decided, pretty much on the spot, that he needed to divorce our Drusilla, that Herod Drusilla had to divorce Azizus, and that they both needed to spend the rest of their lives together. And just how did Felix plan to accomplish this minor miracle? Well, he grabbed a buddy of his, a Cypriot Jew named Simon, had him pose as a magician, and convince Herod Drusilla that her future would be much brighter as Felix's wife. In 54 AD, with great awkwardness all around, everything went off as planned. Herod Drusilla divorced Azizus, Felix divorced Ardrusilla, Felix and Herod Drusilla got married, and the new couple took up residence in Caesarea. No word on whether the Emesene priest-king was able to get a refund on his circumcision. I'm guessing not. And what about our sweet 16-year-old Drusilla, dragged halfway across the Roman world, then kicked to the curb? Well, at least one option was quickly off the table. In October of that year, the Emperor Claudius died, at the age of 64. He was laid to rest in the Augustan Mausoleum and deified by the Roman Senate. In his wake, all eyes turned to Nero, Britannicus, and the dueling claims for succession. Given the situation, Drusilla could likely expect little help from her foster family back in Rome. Fortunately, Drusilla also had local ties. Her mother, Julia Urania, had been an Emesene royal. And Drusilla's ex-husband Felix had just dumped her to steal the Emesene queen. If there was one place our Drusilla would be welcomed with open arms, it was the kingdom of Emesa. Which is exactly where she went. And, with your indulgence, I'm going to hold off on that major thread until next episode, and continue to follow developments under Felix in Judea. As 54 AD rolled into 55, Felix's main concern was that whoever became emperor might fire him. And not just for his scandalous private life, or his growing reputation for corruption and cruelty, but because his brother Pallas had just lost his job. Pallas, Claudius's wealthy and powerful freedman treasurer, had always been close with Nero's mother Agrippina Minor, which was initially a good thing until Nero decided that he was tired of his mother meddling in his affairs, and that anyone close to her had to go. 
Now, Nero wasn't emperor, not yet, but he was already acting like one. So far, he'd been pretty effective at sidelining Britannicus by killing his main supporter, the freedman Narcissus, and suppressing Claudius's final will, which may have named Britannicus his sole heir. But two things kept Nero from leaving well enough alone. The first was, well, not a good thing were a Caesar too many. And the second was when Nero's mother Agrippina, spiteful over her son's growing independence, switched to backing young Britannicus for emperor. And, well, that was that. By early 55 AD, Britannicus was dead, collapsing in convulsions at a dinner party thrown by Nero. The new emperor blamed an epileptic seizure, while most Romans with two brain cells suspected poison. Either way, the succession had been resolved, and 17-year-old Nero became sole ruler of Rome. Luckily for Felix, Nero had bigger fish to fry than one corrupt Roman official, which meant, for the time being, Felix was free to continue his activities unmolested, or at least unmolested by any official Roman sources. But, as mentioned earlier, Felix's capture of Eliezer had done nothing to remedy the causes of Jewish unrest, causes only exacerbated by Felix's behavior. Enter Menachem ben Yehuda, grandson of Judas of Galilee and great-grandson of Hezekiah the bandit chief. A zealot from a family of zealots, Menachem hated the Romans but despised Jewish collaborators even more. He began to gather and organize a group of men, dedicated to eliminating the corrupt temple hierarchy and paving the way for the true kingdom of God. The group's M.O. was soon established. In broad daylight, on crowded streets, during religious festivals, one of their targets would suddenly collapse, blood gushing from a severed throat. It happened so fast, no one ever saw the murderer. It was the Romans who named the group after the small concealable weapons they favored, the Sicarii, or Daggermen. Over the months that followed, more and more Jewish collaborators fell victim to such attacks. Then, in 56 AD, the unthinkable happened. During the major Jewish festival of Passover, a Sicarius, concealed in a crowd of pilgrims, approached the high priest Jonathan and slit his throat. Again, no one saw the murderer, only the aftermath, but the symbolism was inescapable. The highest official of Judaism had been cut down inside the Jewish temple. Many Jews blamed Felix or other Roman officials, arguing that no Jew could have committed such a crime. In the wake of Jonathan's murder, the Sicarii escalated their campaign. The Jewish elite of Jerusalem were reduced to living in terror, as their members were robbed, kidnapped, or killed, and their homes burned to the ground. The revolutionary zeal that permeated the city soon gave birth to a new wave of holy men. The historian Josephus mentions a multitude of impostors, deceiving the people with claims of magical powers. One such figure, 
arriving in Jerusalem from Egypt, gathered several thousand followers on the nearby Mount of Olives. The Egyptian then told them that, at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would soon come tumbling down. Unlike the Sicarii, here was an enemy the Romans knew how to fight. Legionaries climbed to the top of the mount, and then it was pretty much game on. When the dust finally settled, 400 followers were dead, and hundreds more were taken prisoner. But even this victory was incomplete, since the Egyptian managed to escape. The tribune in command of the Jerusalem garrison was a man named Claudius Lysias. Shortly after the incident on the Mount of Olives, Lysias had a prisoner brought in for questioning. The man had been arrested for causing a disturbance near the Jerusalem temple. In fact, he was being beaten to death by a Jewish mob when Roman soldiers had intervened. His suspicions aroused, Lysias asked the prisoner if he just might be the fugitive called the Egyptian. The man responded that no. His name was Paul, and he was a Roman citizen, from the major city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. The man known to history as St. Paul hadn't come to Jerusalem of his own accord, and he certainly hadn't come to be beaten and arrested. In truth, he'd come in response to a summons from the leader of the early Christian church. The historian Josephus clearly identifies the figure as James, the brother of Jesus, the one they call Messiah. Until the writing of the Gospels, no two men would have a larger impact on the development of early Christianity than James and Paul. And since the two men could have hardly been more different, it's worth a short discussion of their histories and beliefs. Jesus' younger brother James, known to everyone in Jerusalem as James the Just, was both a pious and observant Jew and a firm believer in his brother's resurrection. Even among the Jewish temple hierarchy and Roman officials, James's character was considered unimpeachable. He owned nothing, ate sparingly, and never drank wine, bathed, or shaved. His life was built on three pillars, constant prayer, helping the poor, and spreading the word of his brother's faith. Two other things are also worth mentioning. Like Jesus, James stressed the need to uphold Jewish law. And, also like Jesus, James preached to an exclusively Jewish audience. Back in 36 AD, Paul, or Saul, had been a Pharisee and zealot on a mission to hunt down a group of Jesus' followers, who'd fled from Jerusalem to Damascus. As the story goes, as Paul approached the city, he had a vision of the resurrected Jesus, and immediately converted to his faith. Or, more precisely, to Paul's interpretation of his faith. Unlike James, Paul had never met Jesus while he was alive. And also unlike James, Paul put little stock in Jewish law and had no problem preaching to Gentiles. What both James and Paul were preaching was something novel. 
In the Old Testament, the Jewish Messiah was variously described as a prophet who'd herald the end of days, a liberator who'd free the Jews from bondage, or a ruler who'd restore the kingdom of David. But years after the death of Jesus, the world was still around, the Jews were still captive, and the kingdom of David was nowhere to be seen. Despite these facts, both James and Paul were unshakable in their belief that Jesus had been the Jewish Messiah. But the Messiah they preached was something entirely new, a mixture of God and man, whose kingdom was not of this world. James had taken on the Herculean task of remaining in Jerusalem and trying to convince the locals of this new understanding. But the Jews of Jerusalem were well-versed in Jewish scripture and found little basis for the divine being James was describing. Instead, James had far greater luck preaching to a different audience. Jerusalem was still the center of the Jewish world, and every year thousands flocked to the city for a series of Jewish festivals. Whether from major cities of the empire or small local villages, the attendees were typically not experts in Jewish scripture, and were therefore far more open to James's message. But even using this approach, the Jerusalem Christians were hamstrung, since James and his community only spoke Aramaic, not Greek. As a Hellenistic Jew, Paul spent most of his ministry abroad, preaching in Syria, Anatolia, and Greece. Early in his ministry, Paul coined the term Jesus Christ. On the one hand, Christ was just Greek for Messiah, but Paul defined Jesus Christ in drastically new terms. Not only divine, but the first of God's creations, through whom the rest of creation was made. Those who followed Jesus' teachings, again, as interpreted by Paul, would also become both divine and eternal, and join with his spirit in heaven. If this all sounds familiar, you can probably guess whose message eventually won out. But even within the early Christian church, Paul's message was considered pretty radical. Paul's Jesus owed little to either Jewish scripture or the Jewish concept of the Messiah. And for James, that meant Paul needed to be brought back into the fold. The first time Paul had met with the Jerusalem Christians, around 40 AD, they'd been overjoyed at his conversion and quickly sent him off to preach in the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. A decade later, Paul had been called back to Jerusalem to respond to accusations that he'd been preaching to the Gentiles. The practical outcome of this meeting was more openness toward evangelizing outside the Jewish community, and a ruling that Gentile converts didn't have to become circumcised. But the more significant outcome was that James dispatched missionaries to places Paul had been preaching to correct his unorthodox teachings about Jesus. A short time later in Antioch, Paul had a major blowout with the Apostle Peter, one which led to Paul's ejection from the city. Paul responded to all these conflicts by doubling down, taking both his doctrine and his ministry further afield.
Of course, he was still pretty easy to track through the many letters he wrote to early Christians. The debate over Christian orthodoxy came to a head in 56 AD, and for those so inclined, you can pretty much read along, starting with Acts 21, verse 17. Paul was again summoned to Jerusalem by the local Christian community. James accused Paul of instructing his Jewish followers to forsake Jewish law and not become circumcised. Paul really had no response, and James compelled him to join four other men in a Jewish purification ritual. It was a very public way to make Paul submit to James' authority and confirm his devotion to Jewish law. Near the end of the ceremony, Paul was recognized by a group of devout Jews. While James may have had issues with Paul's particular spin on Christianity, the Jews only knew him as an enemy of Jewish law. They quickly fell upon him, dragged him from the temple, and began beating him to death. Which just happened to be the moment when our Roman beat cops intervened. Realizing that the situation was a bit above his pay grade, the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias eventually shipped Paul off to the Judean capital of Caesarea. Once there, he was brought before the Roman procurator, our good friend Marcus Antonius Felix and his new wife Herod Drusilla. They apparently did question Paul about his interesting new faith, but were mainly interested in any bribes he might offer. When no such offers were made, Paul was thrown in jail, where he'd remain for the next several years. In 58 AD, Felix would be replaced by Porcius Festus, and both Felix and Herod Drusilla would return to Rome. Both soon drop out of the historical record, with one notable exception. Only two major figures are recorded as perishing in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. One is Pliny the Elder, and the other is Herod Drusilla. She died along with her two children by Felix, a son named Marcus Antonius Agrippa and a daughter named Antonia Clementiana, both named in honor of Felix's former owner, Antonia Minor. But, of course, in 54 AD, the fateful eruption was still decades in the future, and our Drusilla, Drusilla of Mauritania, was making her way toward a new life in the kingdom of Emesa. Emesa. 